we have to remember there's a large Armenian population in many Western countries. Mm-hmm. Um, the the Kardashians, you know, which is I quite think. significant. Yeah, I mean, the Kardashians, exactly. I mean, you know, we laugh about it. But, uh, you know, they visited Armenia and they're national heroes. This is Here's How, Ireland's political, social and current affairs podcast, presented by William Campbell. And we're back. It's episode 166 for the 3rd of November, 2023. Donald Trump is going to jail. That's a whole big story in itself. The reason why Donald Trump is going to jail, I'll talk about that in a moment. But that's not really the point. The real point is that Donald Trump is going to jail. And he's going to jail soon. Some really fine people, the Republicans, and then with a very dishonest person, crooked Hillary Clinton. (laughs) And during that time, and (laughs) during... That's audio of the crowd at a Trump rally when he was running against Hillary Clinton, shouting, lock her up, one of the dozens, probably hundreds of times that it happened. I don't think that any but the most deluded of the people there shouting really believed that there was any chance that Hillary Clinton would actually be going to jail. Someone once said that Trump's detractors took him literally but not seriously, while his supporters took him seriously but not literally. It might be because there's been so much insincere talk about sending people to jail that I think people aren't really taking seriously two things that are going to happen. I haven't seen any commentator give a reasonable analysis of what I think are two important likely outcomes. The second most important one is, of course, what do you do with the reality of having a candidate for President of the United States locked up in a federal prison cell at the height of an election campaign? But much more important, and it's getting even less attention, I talked on the podcast a while ago about how important it is, when you're discussing any topic, to give some thought to what happens next. Donald Trump is convicted in a federal court of serious crimes, he's handcuffed, he's led away to a prison van, and he's taken to a federal penitentiary where he may well spend the rest of his life. It would be a media event comparable with 9-11. But what happens next? After the World Trade Center attack, there was saturation coverage for weeks, but very few people were contemplating the what happens next that we have now been living through for more than two decades. You might think, Trump going to prison, it'll never happen. If you do think that, you're not paying attention. First, some basic facts. The US has a federal government and a federal system of courts and prisons and criminal laws. Almost all cases are heard in state courts. 
murder trials like O.J. Simpson, defamation trials like Amber Heard and Johnny Depp, and many less famous ones, they're all heard by state courts under state law. The FBI and the U.S. Department of Justice investigate federal crimes, and despite their prominence in films and TV, their cases only make up a tiny proportion of all of the trials in the U.S. For the feds to get involved, the crime must be something that crosses state lines, like the Unabomber who posted his bombs from one state to another, or it must be an attack on the federal government itself. So, in America, it's pretty unusual to be charged with a federal crime. But if you are, your fate is pretty much sealed. Their conviction rate is truly spectacular. Of cases that come before the courts at all, even just for a preliminary hearing, about 8% of them are dismissed. Typically, if they're dismissed, it happens early in the process for some procedural reason. Witnesses have become unavailable, evidence has been lost, or a search or other evidence is ruled inadmissible, and the trial is abandoned. That's about how 8% of cases conclude. But if you exclude them, of the rest of the cases where someone is charged with a federal crime, 99.6% end with a conviction. Get that. If you can't get your federal charges dismissed, you have a 99.6% chance of being convicted. But that doesn't mean you don't get a fair trial. Most likely, you don't get a trial at all. 97.5% of cases end with a guilty plea, either in the hope or, in the case of a plea bargain, the promise of a reduced sentence. Only 2.5% of cases go to trial at all, and of that 2.5%, 2.1% get convicted, and 0.4% get acquitted. That's right. The U.S. federal courts acquit the defendant in one case out of every 250. As I said, many cases end with plea deals, which adds to their success rate because the feds are famous for what they call pyramid prosecutions, where they threaten lower-level criminals with many, many decades in prison if they don't flip and give evidence against their crime boss. The more information they have to give, the better the deal. The feds are infamous for extracting the hardest of deals, insisting that if anyone make a deal, that deal depends on them handing over every scrap of information, every scrap of evidence they have. They then take that evidence and charge the next person up the criminal pyramid and repeat the process. The American justice system is nothing to aspire to, but the surviving bosses of Enron, WorldCom and other corporate scams are still in jail, while their opposite numbers in Ireland are enjoying their retirement on our millions. Why am I so sure that Donald Trump is going to jail? He is currently facing 
two sets of serious federal charges, one for election interference, trying to get officials in Georgia to overturn his loss in that state, and one for stealing classified documents. And here's a list for you to take in. Deep breath. Kenneth Chesborough, one of Trump's former lawyers, Patrick Burney, the vice president of finance at the Trump Organization, Sean Still, a Georgia state senator, David Schaefer, the former chair of the Georgia Republican Party, Kathleen Latham, also of the Georgia Republican Party, Uskul Taveras, an IT worker at Trump's Mar-a-Lago, who was asked to delete surveillance tapes, Jenna Ellis, another Trump lawyer, the swivel-eyed Sidney Powell, who gave such insane conspiracy theories that even Fox News didn't want her on anymore, and lastly, Mark Meadows, Trump's White House Chief of Staff. That's the list of Donald Trump's co-defendants who the federal prosecutors have already flipped like pancakes at the local IHOP. All their evidence is now available to the prosecution. There is no doubt about who is at the top of this pyramid. And it's very notable that Mark Meadows, who was at Trump's side throughout his presidency, got the best deal of all, total immunity from prosecution. He didn't get that unless he gave the prosecutors something very valuable. The trial for election interference begins on the 4th of March next year. That's a Monday. The next day is Super Tuesday when many states hold their election primaries. That's only five months away. Two months later, in May, the trial for stealing classified documents starts. Maybe Trump can be that one out of 250 who gets acquitted, but to do it again, that's asking to win the lottery twice. And even if he's elected president from his prison cell and pardons himself, if that's possible, Trump is also facing serious state criminal charges in New York, which a president cannot pardon. But I don't want to focus on that. I want to focus on what happens the day he's imprisoned. To be honest, I'm astonished that nobody's talking about this. Trump is still popular. He is currently ahead of Joe Biden in most polls. But even without a majority, he still has legions of devoted fans and a large subset of them are angry, armed, and, to put it bluntly, insane. In 1991, Rodney King was savagely beaten and electrocuted by a mob of dozens of California policemen who, unknown to them, were recorded by a man testing out his new video camera. Several days later, that man gave the tape to the KTLA TV station and the shocking video was beamed across the world. When the four policemen who led the attack were acquitted in questionable circumstances 14 months later, Los Angeles erupted in riots which cost a billion dollars in damages and 63 lives. I don't want for a moment to compare the attack on Rodney King and the comeuppance that I think is coming for Donald Trump, but I think it gives us some insight into the possible reaction to Donald Trump being led away in an orange jumpsuit. 
but there are significant differences. Firstly, it took nearly a week for the attack on Rodney King to come to public attention, and the reaction to the failed trial was relatively localised to poorer areas of Los Angeles. Trump's trials will be held in the internet era of instant news. Hundreds of millions of people will watch the verdict live on their TV or phone. Many of them believe in persecution complex conspiracy theories so insane that they would make Sidney Powell blush. And there's a strong correlation between those beliefs and access to powerful weapons. Those conspiracy theories, along with Trump himself, promote distrust and resistance to the institutions of the state. And yet, most of the commentary that I've heard that contemplates Trump going to jail has a ho-ho-ho tone of asking if he could run for president from a prison cell. Seriously? If, when, Donald Trump goes to prison, I'd question whether it'll be possible to hold an election at all. In a moment, we'll have that interview with James Kerlinsay, but I first want to say thank you to all of the patrons on Patreon. I really appreciate everyone who donates on Patreon. We don't get a huge amount of money out of it. We're not in the big league like some Irish podcasters, but it pays for things like web hosting. Kevin and myself basically donate our time for free. And it's also great as a morale booster when we get new patron on Patreon. It lets us know that people out there are listening and appreciating the podcast. We make a big effort to cover things that are undercovered in Irish media. You're more than welcome to listen for free, but if you think you could do the same as the patrons and donate the price of a cup of coffee once or twice a month, there's details how to do that on the website and at the end of the show. Do you agree? Do you disagree? Follow at Here's How Podcast on Twitter and like Here's How on Facebook for updates on each show's contents. On the line, I have Professor James Kerr-Lindsay. He's a visiting professor at the London School of Economics. And James, tell me exactly, what is your academic speciality? I, I work on conflict and security issues, but um, I've spent a lot of time working on uh, what, what we call de facto states. So uh, territories that are proclaimed independence, but aren't internationally recognised. Okay. And I know that you specialise on Southern and Eastern Europe. And we spoke to you a short while ago about the other end of Europe of Ireland and Irish neutrality and how that is how that is used internationally. People can go back and listen to that from, I think, about last June. But today I want to talk to you about Armenia and Azerbaijan. Uh, they had a brief but I think very important conflict and that has been brewing for a while. And I think maybe it would be good if I start off by just telling you what I understand and then you can come back and tell me everything that I'm wrong about. So I think, and maybe you disagree, but I think this really goes back to czarist times because in the Russian Empire, where they had this Russian kind of heartland in the middle and all of these troublesome, often independence-seeking nationalities, particularly at the periphery, one policy they had was of helping and supporting and favouring the local minorities in order to kind of strengthen them and keep the local majority angry with them, essentially, in the hope that they would be fighting each other and nobody ever actually win and be too distracted to fight the Russians. And 
I think it's fairly clear the communists in the Soviet Union continued this policy. And Armenia and Azerbaijan, those countries are located, if people think of the, uh, the Ukraine war and the Black Sea at the nexus of where Turkey and Iran and Russia meet. And Azerbaijan is larger. It's got about three times the population of the current Armenia. It is a Sunni Muslim country, although I think fairly secular by many, many standards. Armenia is Christian country. They each have their own language. I think even their own alphabets as well. And especially in the Tsarist times, but really since, there was never a clear line that you could draw as a border that you could say, okay, pretty much everyone on this side of the line is Armenia, pretty much everyone on that side of the line is Azerbaijan. And when the Soviet Union fell apart, large numbers of each population was left on the other side of the border. In particular, this area, Nagorno-Karabakh, which was Armenian populated or perhaps mixed populated up to 1994. It was taken over by Armenia in 1994, that's about five years after the Soviet Union fell, in a war that Armenia effectively won, most likely heavily supported by at least a huge amount of Russian weapons, possibly also Russian personnel. That was essentially a frozen conflict for about 25 years. And in 2020, there was a war where Azerbaijan took back a chunk of territory and just last September 2023, with Russian supposed peacekeepers distracted in uh, by being essentially evacuated to fight in Ukraine, Azerbaijan was unrestrained and in three days recaptured all of this territory. Am I getting that right, James? Yes, I, I, look, I mean, as, as you can imagine, I mean, it, it's these these situations are incredibly difficult to unpack in a in a nice sort of succinct way. But essentially, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, exactly. I mean, we we had this this region that, as you very nicely pointed out, I mean, it it, it is strategically very interesting and important because it is that melting pot, uh, and it is also that meeting point uh, between Russia, Turkey, and Iran, and. Um, I, I think what what's been so so interesting all in all of this is exactly this point that you you had under the Soviet Union a rather complex structure of um, different territories. So, at mm -hmm. the high level, the, the the highest strand, if you like, within the Soviet Union were the Soviet Socialist Republics. So mm -hmm. when we think of that, obviously Russia was the most significant of those. Uh, but you had Ukraine, you had Belarus, you had the three Baltic republics, which mm -hmm. were very controversial because Soviet sovereignty over that was never recognised by many Western countries. Yeah, including and Ireland, then of course yes. you had Yes, exactly. And then um, you, you you had the three Caucasus republics. Uh, so that was Georgia, Armenia, Azerbaijan, and then the Central Asian. So we're talking Uzbekistan, uh, uh, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan. So, you know, those were the top end ones. But then you'd have a second order of republics within that. Um, These are subdivisions of those. Like Exactly, autonomous oblasts, and and essentially the situation as we see it with with Nagorno Karabakh was that it was uh, an Armenian inhabited area that fell within the Azerbaijani Soviet Socialist Republic, and it was given autonomous uh, autonomy as the autonomous oblast of Nagorno Karabakh, mm -hmm. and that worked under the Soviet system. But of course, when the Soviet Union broke apart, what we saw 
is that those Armenians then said, well, look, um, there's no Soviet Union anymore. We don't want to be part of Azerbaijan as an independent state. We want to break away, um, either form our own territory or else um, unite with Armenia. And of course, Azerbaijan rejected that. Mm -hmm. And so they took up arms to fight to break away. And as you, you rightly pointed out, so, so, Armenia so the, won. The, the Armenian population, which in this area, which was complete, it was not a border area, it was completely islanded and surrounded by Azerbaijan, but it was populated. And prior to the break of the, up of the Soviet Union, was that a mixed population or was that more or less uh, predominantly Armenian? It was predominantly Armenian. I mean, okay. you know, the, the thing was, you, you were, you did have uh, Azerbaijanis or ethnic Azeris um, who who lived there, and it's actually sort of quite quite interesting to point out because people often use the term Azerbaijani and Azeri interchangeably, mm -hmm. and there is a slight difference between the two. I mean, it, it, so, it, so Iran Iran might have an Azeri population, so they're ethnically the same as exactly, Azerbaijan, yeah, but, but not, not citizens. Yeah, so, uh, Iran's got an Azeri population, but it hasn't got an Azerbaijani population. Azerbaijani uh, is is the sort of yeah the state definition, and it, it's often difficult. We use as I say this term Azeri as a shorthand. But in this sense, what you could say is that, you know, uh, there were a population of ethnic Azeris who were also living there, but it was predominantly far and away uh, Armenian populated and wanted to break away. And with mm -hmm. support of Armenia, uh, there was a at the start of nineties they fought a, a what was a very brutal war and won, uh, but it wasn't just that they took hold of control of Nagorno Karabakh. Mm -hmm. uh, they took control of a whole swathe of surrounding districts, uh, and what you will have which is were Azeri populated, which were not Armenian exactly. Yeah. Which so, so you Armenian had you had Armenian ethnic ethnic Azeris ethnic Az Azerbaijanis living. In Azerbaijan, not in Nagorno-Karabakh, but under Armenian military control, essentially. Well, essentially, what happened is that you didn't because they they were all forced out, and this uh -huh. is the thing. I mean, you know what what we're seeing at the moment, jumping ahead just slightly, mm. is that in all the um, accusations that what Azerbaijan has done recently amounts to ethnic cleansing, and this is extremely controversial, and there's a, quite a a, a serious divide in opinion on this, as you can imagine, with Armenia calling it ethnic cleansing mm -hmm. and Azerbaijan saying, no, absolutely not. These were people choosing to leave. But what we've had for 30 years is Azerbaijan insisting uh, that all its citizens who were forced out, its ethnic Azeri citizens who were forced out, were mm -hmm. ethnically cleansed by Armenians. Mm -hmm. So they're saying what we've done is we've just righted that balance. We've allowed the people to return, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the the original inhabitants. So you, you, you had this brutal war that took place in the 1990s. Armenia won a stunning victory. Uh, and, and it doesn't. It doesn't take. It doesn't take control. a genius, James. I, I'm presuming you would agree. It doesn't take a genius to work out that Armenia, much smaller, winning won a stunning victory because they had the covert and sometimes not so covert support from Moscow in terms of high tech weapons, and uh, Azerbaijan uh, basically didn't. I think you 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 can you can put it down to a lot of a lot of different factors. Um, mm. You know, there was there was a feeling that Armenia was far better organised. Uh, that, uh, it, it, yeah, I mean, it's 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 a complex question, but I, I mean, I think there would be that argument that um, Armenia had very close relations with with Russia. Mm -hmm. 
uh, traditionally uh, that it was it was potentially better integrated so that there would have, there would have been more support for it. But I think, you know, it, it, it's funny that when we talk about it, we don't really tend to think that much more about how Russia played a role in the early 1990s, partly because also Russia was in was obviously in a bit of a mess itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the predominant view is that, you know, they, they, they had their weapons and the Armenians were the tougher fighters, essentially, is, mm-hmm. is the way that it's usually characterised. Um, but all this meant that uh, Azerbaijan had lost large parts of its territory and was determined to get it back. Now, one thing that's also really important to mention in all of this is that um, for all sorts of reasons to do with international law, international politics, but Armenia's claim over this territory was always rejected by the international community. Mm -hmm. So there were a number of Security Council resolutions passed at the time of the war that all reaffirmed Azerbaijan's sovereignty over Nagorno-Karabakh. Now, the Armenians... This this is basically... Sorry, because I don't want to race ahead of... uh, Not everybody Mm. is as expert as you, James. This is essentially because of the Helsinki Accords that came from after World War II, which said we don't recognise forcible changes of borders done by one country invading another. Yes, and also there is... um, So there's a very legal technical term, which, you know, for, for those of us who work in this area is is, is important, but it also mm-hmm. helps to explain conflict all around the world and why the world tends to respond in the way it does. Uh, mm-hmm. So there's something called uti positetis, which means essentially, it means um, as you hold, so you shall hold. Mm-hmm. So what this means is that when a country breaks apart, uh, for example, a federation, the usual presumption is that the federal boundaries will then become the boundaries of the new state. Mm -hmm. And this comes back to the earlier point I made about the difference between those top-level Soviet socialist republics and the second-order republics. Mm -hmm. Um, So the world said, we will recognise the top-order republics as independent states. Hence, we've got Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Uzbekistan, all the ones that we went over, Russia, Ukraine. And it's possibly worth, it's possibly worth, just in James, James, on that, it's possibly worth uh, mentioning that the Soviets, during the time of the Soviet Union, they were pretty free and easy with changing those borders around of the top level republics and abolishing and creating different ones and there was a Finnish uh, republic at one point and uh, at a different point Crimea was transferred from Russia to Ukraine and there were other um, significant border changes which probably had little if no democratic uh, legitimacy. Would you agree? Uh, Absolutely But, and there is a huge caveat in all of this, um, that when the Soviet Union broke apart, uh, in effect, the end result of those changes was recognised. The terms under which those changes were made were considered irrelevant. Mm -hmm. Um, Rather than get into a dispute on each of these cases, and you can understand why policymakers made this decision. They said, listen, you know what? We're not going to get into all of this discussion and we're not going to work out the rights and wrongs, whether the border between Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan should have been this, that or the other. Mm -hmm. We'll just take the borders as they existed at the moment the Soviet Union broke apart. We'll treat those now as the state boundaries, the state borders and keep it there. And of course, this is incredibly important for the debate that we're having on Ukraine, because, you know, there's the argument the Russians say, well, Ukraine, um, Crimea was given over to Ukraine, we shouldn't have accepted that, maybe not. But that's what happened. And Russia had accepted it Mm -hmm. at the moment 
that Ukraine became independent. And so this also, you know, so this is where it all becomes interlinked. What we're seeing in a lot of the former Soviet Union, these legacy conflicts. Yes, and it's, it's, it's important to point out, just, just James, same. it's important to point out uh, on the question of Ukraine in 1991, when the Ukrainian independence referendum was held, Crimea by a narrower margin, but voted in favour of Crimea, of Ukrainian independence as well. So exactly, that, yes, that's that's. So it, it did actually have internal legitimacy, exactly mm. as you say. But from an external point of view, as I say, the the overall view was not even that we're going to park these discussions. We're not going to even open these discussions. Mm-hmm. We're going to take the the borders, the internal Soviet boundaries as they existed at the moment that the Soviet Union broke apart. And we're going to treat those now as the new state boundary, uh, the state borders. Mm-hmm. And of course, you had these different groups saying, but we think this is unfair. We don't like this. Nagorno-Karabakh was a very obvious example of this. The Armenians said, you know, this should never have been part of Azerbaijan. We want it for our territory. Now that the Soviet Union's broken apart, you know, there's meant to be this right of self-determination. It doesn't actually work in these cases because, as I say, there's this overriding principle of respecting state borders. Mm-hmm. But this then became the, the 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 basis for the you know for the war that took place between Azerbaijan and Armenia. But to re-emphasize again that from a legal international point of view, there were Security Council resolutions calling this Azerbaijani territory. But mm-hmm. and it is again an important but the expectation was for a peaceful resolution of the mm-hmm. conflict. Uh, so there'd been a war that this territory was officially recognised as being Azerbaijani territory, but there was the expectation the sides would reach, eventually reach a negotiated settlement to determine what would be the final status of Nagorno-Karabakh. Oh, okay. And then there was a second war in uh, 2020. Was it from then on that what were called Russian peacekeepers were based there? Yes, but I, I think I think just before we get on to that, I think mm-hmm. it's important to note that, you know, these these talks which came up with a set of principles about how the conflict would be resolved. What we saw over the past decade is that Azerbaijan consciously decided uh, that it was going to move in the direction of a military solution mm-hmm. to the problem. So Azerbaijan, as as you know, many listeners will be aware, is is very wealthy. It's it's got fantastic energy resources in the Caspian Sea. They struck oil, what basically. We, we, exactly. So what we saw is that over the past decade and a half, uh, that the government in Baku had been steadily increasing its defence budget and its military expenditure, to the point that in some years, their military expenditure actually um, was larger than the entire Armenian state budget. Mm -hmm. So there was a massive process of arms purchases, training, and it was very clear, it was becoming very clear um, towards, by the middle to around 2015, 2016, that Azerbaijan was moving very clearly in this direction. And one of the, you know, the the big debates and the discussions that the Armenians are going to have to have in amongst their their own society as they process what's happened is, did they miss that window of opportunity to reach a negotiated settlement? Mm -hmm. Uh, And what instead happened is that Azerbaijan just said, you know what, Um, we're not going to bother. 
we're just going to retake it by force. And this is exactly what we saw happen uh, in, 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 in the conflict in, in 2020. Okay. That they said, right, okay, uh, you know what? We've had enough. There'd been several, there'd been mounting tensions. There'd been a number of border incidents that had been taking place. Uh, there'd been incidents along the demarcation line between Nagorno-Karabakh and, 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 uh, and, and the areas held by Armenians. Mm-hmm. And then... Uh, Azerbaijan launched a war and they moved incredibly quickly. So in the space of less than a month and a half, mm-hmm. they took back all the surrounding areas and they bit into a big chunk of Nagorno-Karabakh. And it was only at the last minute. And, and it literally was This the last was 2020. Minute. Many in 2020 that if Russia hadn't have stepped in when it did, there was every chance that Azerbaijan would have taken back the entirety of Nagorno-Karabakh at that moment. I mean, we were talking literally hours mm. and then Russia stepped in and brokered this ceasefire and said, okay, we're going to put in our peacekeeping troops. So it's really important to, to sort of emphasise that Russia froze that conflict, but did so in a way um, that left both sides very unhappy. So Azerbaijan sort of saw this as... Um, it was thwarted in taking back the territory that it saw as its own. Mm-hmm. And in Armenia, which had this close relationship with Russia, they felt very let down. They said, Russia, why didn't you step in earlier? Mm-hmm. And all you've done here is that there was a feeling, I was in Armenia actually the following year, and there was a real sense that Russia had only stepped in so that it could secure its place as having troops on the ground in Azerbaijan. It's, it's got military bases, by the way, in Armenia. Mm-hmm. There's a close relationship between Armenia and Russia, which is now starting to break down for all of these reasons. Okay, well, then I want to talk to you about two things that I think are perhaps undercovered or perhaps under understood in the West in particular. And one is that in almost exactly 100 years ago this year, there was what was called the Armenian Genocide, where probably in the region of a million Armenians were killed by Turkish forces. That was frequently by being forcibly marched into the desert without food or water supplies. That is an incredibly touchy subject for Armenia, of course, also for Turkey. And it has become perhaps a way of signalling hostility or otherwise to Turkey that about, I think, uh, 35 countries have formally voted to recognise this as uh, as genocide. That is something strongly opposed even today by Turkey. And when that is placed beside what happened this year, whereby the entire population, probably about 150,000 people from Nagorno-Karabakh, were effectively expelled or chose to leave, but essentially the whole area was denuded of its population and they went to Armenia uh, proper. Can you tell me, does that resonate for Armenia as feeling like a continuation of that genocide and ethnic cleansing? Essentially, yes. I I, I mean, you know, it's it's been a very i mean armenians will talk about their traumatic history and it it, it has been and i i the, you know there's a huge debate that even rages now about whether what happened in the first world war amounted to genocide or not uh turkey for example uh absolutely categorically refutes this and says that this wasn't genocide um more and more countries have been recognizing it as a as a genocide uh, as you said i mean you know 
genocide is it, it, it is a very complex subject. It's actually defined legally. There's a UN convention on you know the prevention and, and, and punishment of genocide that was it was put into force in the late 1940s, and it mm-hmm. doesn't just sort of say. Um, the act of you know act of genocide amounts to essentially killing members of a group, but it, it, it's far broader than that. It's inflicting uh, you know. Uh, it's the intention torture, to wipe them out. Punishment, exactly. You know, and so there, there's an argument that under that the idea that you could march millions of people or hundreds of thousands of people uh, into the desert without food, without water, without medical care. Uh, it amounted to genocide. So okay, and, the, and know, one of the it, things I think one of the things that most undermines the Turkish argument that it wasn't genocide is the statements of some of the uh, Turkish people at the time of what they were doing, and in cases specifically saying, "Oh, we have to kill all the women and children as well because they will grow up to be uh, grow up to be enemies," and that that t- tends to undermine that. And I think that background illustrates just how touchy that is. And I suppose my question is, Mm. because you're an expert in the area, that entire population of Nagorno-Karabakh was evacuated or evacuated themselves to Armenia. Do you think that there was a degree to which they chose to do that because they did not want to live under Azerbaijani rule? Or do you think that they were in genuine danger uh, for their lives? My my view on this i mean obviously look it's 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 an extremely complex question and again it's 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 been very bitterly fought over mm-hmm. uh, and we've seen a big debate on this but what we had seen is that there had been a concerted effort over many months leading up to Azerbaijan's military action to blockade Nagorno-Karabakh. Mm-hmm. So essentially, Baku had become completely frustrated with the way that the talks were going and had said, you know what, we're, we're, we're just going to completely isolate it. Uh, that, you know, we're going to cut off aid convoys, we're going to cut electricity, food, medical supplies from getting through. Mm-hmm. So the thing is that ethnic cleansing, unlike genocide, interestingly, even though we use both of these terms quite quite often in international relations, genocide is very clearly defined. The difference, on the other hand, is that ethnic cleansing isn't. Mm-hmm. There isn't a convention against ethnic cleansing. I mean, there was a report that was produced in the early 1990s against the backdrop of, of Yugoslavia, uh, which laid out a definition that tends to be used, but it's not got quite that same legal force as a, a proper treaty or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So it gets you get into very, very difficult territory in 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 this. And that Azerbaijan is absolutely adamant that no, we 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 staged a military action, but um we weren't, you know, we had no intention of forcing the population out. They decided to leave of their own free will. Whereas the Armenians will of course say, but this follows uh, what had been an extremely brutal conflict that is a very difficult relationship, um, that there was also importantly a long history where the Azerbaijani state mm-hmm. would demonize Armenians. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was a very, very famous case, for example, where you um, you had uh, an Armenian and an Azerbaijani military officers, uh, a training course in Hungary, and one night, the Azerbaijani went into the Armenian room and killed him. Oh. And uh, this was absolutely shocking. 
Uh, and um, eventually, you know, he was jailed in Hungary for this. Eventually, Azerbaijan negotiated his return uh, to Azerbaijan, and he was treated as a hero. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also uh, it, it's it was also actually a brutal, brutal case. Case, and it, you know, it's a lot more shocking. If, if, if your listeners want to go and investigate, it's very easy to find. Um, but this was this was an example that many would say that there was an ingrained sense of hatred towards the other in both countries, but especially in Azerbaijan, which would have given the Armenians a very, very real sense of existential threat if Azerbaijani armies more marched in to the remaining territory that was held. So, you know, many would say, look, we had no choice, and they knew that we would have no choice but to leave for our own safety. Um but a, a lot now is going to hinge. I think, you know, that debate is going to rage. Uh, a lot now is going to hinge on on whether those Armenians, an effort is going to be made to persuade them to return and whether they will, in fact, return. So in, in some ways, rather than sort of look to the past, I think a lot of people are looking to the future and saying, you know, can the Armenians establish this very historic presence in Nagorno-Karabakh or is that now well and truly over? Okay. And of course, then the fact that Nagorno-Karabakh there had been had been blockaded by the surrounding Azerbaijani forces to the point that people were almost starving uh, doesn't really give uh, give very much confidence. And on top of that, videos were uh, seen online of surrendered and clearly unarmed Armenian soldiers being dragged, tied up, and then executed, murdered on the battlefield, which is clearly a war crime. So that's that's yes. uh, certainly not something that would inspire trust. The other side of that that I think is also not entirely understood, and, and including by me, is the degree to which Russia was participating and or engineering in the situation, because it is certainly a repeated pattern of Russian operations in the former Soviet Union to create frozen conflicts. And that exists as well as uh, existed up to recently in Azerbaijan and Armenia, also in uh, Moldova, where Russia effectively or Russian loyal separatists occupy a small strip of territory. That's true in Georgia, and uh, that was also up to the Ukraine war uh, happening in Ukraine. And it's clear that there were what was called Russian peacekeepers. But as you say, in the 2020 war, Russia essentially stepped in and prevented the capitulation of Armenia. And they may have had a number of reasons for that, and that might have been a good thing to do for other reasons. But do you think that an element of the Russian calculation there and elsewhere was to say, if both of these countries are in a frozen conflict, that means that they can't, they effectively can't join any other international security organizations. That makes them, keeps them out of NATO. That suits us. So we help Armenia just enough to make sure that Azerbaijan cannot win but that the conflict remains. And then once the Russian troops were evacuated because of the desperate situation, they find themselves in Ukraine. And Moscow was obviously clearly distracted. Azerbaijan, that had been preparing and spending huge amounts on their military, they said, OK, now we can go. The Russians are not in a position to support Armenia. And that war was effectively over in three days because the Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh saw the Azerbaijanis coming and 
completely surrendered and there was very little fighting. Am I getting that analysis right or what do you think of that? So, yes, I mean, essentially that is exactly um, the way that it eventually played out so that we, we have this very clear picture of Russia obviously trying to maintain uh, influence within the borders of the fo- former Soviet Union, if not slightly beyond. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're right. I mean, it, my sense, and I think most observers' sense, is that um, Russia in 2020 had seen this opportunity to step in at the last moment to give it relevance, keep it a frozen conflict. So the many the question many people are asking is, why didn't Russia try and stop uh, Azerbaijan this time? Because surely an Azerbaijani victory uh, has now reduced that Russian influence. And I, I think, you know, it's a really interesting debate to be had about this. So, you know, sure, because the, they can't. The, the one argument. Well, uh, there is that argument, exactly. The one argument is that, uh, you know, it's so preoccupied with Ukraine, it can't. It's more complex than that because it also touches then on. Uh, domestic dynamics in Armenia and in Azerbaijan. And what we've actually seen in in recent years is, I think, this turning uh, against Russia uh, within Armenia um, and especially at the the level of the government. So Armenia actually retains links with with security links with Russia. It's got Russian bases. um, But we've seen clear indications that within Armenia they're recalibrating uh, their foreign affairs and want to move closer to the West. Uh, Part of this was also, I mean, you know, I I think we have to remember there's a large Armenian population in many Western countries. Mm -hmm. um, The the Kardashians, I think. quite significant. Yeah, I mean, the Kardashians, exactly. I mean, you know, we laugh about it, but, uh, you know, they visited Armenia and they're national heroes and, mm-hmm. you know, these these are prominent, you know, and these sort of things can have an effect. But I think there's mm-hmm. also a, just a general sense that there's a lot more sympathy towards Armenia, I think, in many Western countries than Azerbaijan. I mean, Azerbaijan is, uh, you know, it, it's it's been ruled by a father-then-son team for many years. There have been lots of questions about its human rights record, uh, clearly many questions about its democratic record. Um, so even though traditionally it's been thought of because of energy that Azerbaijan is, is closer geostrategically to the West... I think in terms of public sentiment and policy sentiment, that there's been more of a sense of sympathy towards the Armenians. Mm-hmm. And I think what we're now seeing is that Armenia is starting to pick up on that and Russia being very unhappy about it. At the same time, um, you know, there's a complex relationship in in the Caucasus and Turkey with, with Russia. And we've seen this very, very clearly during the Ukraine war, that um, Turkey has been, along with Hungary the weak link in the NATO alliance against Russia. Mm-hmm. Uh, that Turkey has been saying, oh, you know what, we, well, you know, we, we we see ourselves as an honest broker and everything. And, you know, this has really undermined trust in Turkey's role. And remembering that Turkey, if you like, is the big brother of Azerbaijan. It's maybe a little bit of a simplistic characterization, but, but essentially They're both Turkic nations and they would be ethnically they not Turkic the same, nations. but close. 
their languages are very, very close. Oh, by the way, one small point that, that you, you, you said in the introduction, which is actually quite mm. interesting, is that um, religiously, uh, Azerbaijan, you, you were very right to say, is secular, but it's actually Shia majority. It's, ah. it's one of the very, So that very would be the same, the same sect of Islam as, as Iran and very few countries. There's only a couple of countries that have Shia dominated uh, Muslim Bahrain populations. Bahrain is, is another one, and and Iran, um, Iraq has, mm -hmm. uh, if not a Shia majority, then a, a Shia plurality. So mm -hmm. the largest single group are Shia. But if you if you talk about overall Shia states, it's Iran, uh, Azerbaijan and, and Bahrain, mm -hmm. um, certainly. And, and Lebanon's also got a large Shia community. But um, be that as it may, um, Turkey and Azerbaijan have an extremely close fraternal relationship with mm. one another. Um, so what we've actually seen, all this is to say, is that Aliyev, the, the you know, the the, the leader in, in Azerbaijan, has actually been moving closer to Moscow mm -hmm. um, in, in, in recent months. So there might have been a sense that Moscow said, you know what, looking at their calculation, mm -hmm. Armenia, small, not that significant, uh, if we get on better with Azerbaijan, it's going to do us all sorts of favours. Uh, it's going to improve relations again with with Turkey. Let's just throw Nagorno-Karabakh under a bus. We 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 can't really control this. Azerbaijan is clearly itching to take back control. Let's let them. Mm -hmm. So it's a it's a really interesting. So there is that discussion that Moscow acted in the way it did because it couldn't do otherwise. But I think there's also a far more interesting story that in actual fact there was there was more to it than this that moscow actually effectively ceded nagorno-karabakh to azerbaijan and and what we've seen is that this now seems to be accelerating armenia's move towards the west so one of the things that for example that armenia did that it hadn't done before is it signed up uh to the treaty on the international criminal court mm -hmm. um which is interesting on all sorts of levels because one does it mean that azerbaijanis you know it can extradite any azerbaijanis if it can get its hands on them mm -hmm. but the other thing is it now means that technically uh, if vladimir putin were to go to armenia he could should and possibly i don't think he would uh, but certainly could and should be arrested mm -hmm. um you it's, know it's, there it's is obviously saying... an indictment it's worth saying, if you look at the Economist uh, Democracy Index, Armenia is no great shakes. It is regarded as a hybrid regime with a score of about 5.6 out of 10. Azerbaijan is an absolute authoritarian state with a score out of 10 of 2.9. Although it is not a democracy in the Western European sense, there is far more democracy in Armenia than in Azerbaijan. So what you're saying, and I had noted that, and I had it in my notes, that the population in Armenia previously quite closely aligned to Russia, now seems to be tending because they were, as you say, thrown to the wolves by the Russians. They are much more open to closer relations with the West. But the flip of that is that Azerbaijan, which previously had been quite possibly fighting what were actually Russian special forces in disguise uh, when they were fighting Armenia, are now more likely to ally themselves or perhaps moving towards being allied to Moscow, is that perhaps a signal also of weakness from Russia in that they need to do that? Uh, you know, we we are, I think, by, by general consensus at an inflection point uh, in international relations at the moment, um, you know, and it, it, it's something that I think we've, we've been seeing over the past 10 years. Uh, I 
thought that the withdrawal from Afghanistan was the moment. But of course, now we've got the war in Ukraine and it, it, it's sort of, if you like, strengthen the US place in the world. I know this all seems a bit sort of tangential to what mm. we're talking about, but it comes back to this fact that there is a big, you know, there were very, very serious questions about realignments in international affairs uh, and, and where that is going. And Turkey is an important player in all of this. And so this has a knock-on effect in terms of the relationship between our, uh, Armenia, Azerbaijan, with Russia, that, as I say, that I think Armenia is now looking far more towards the West. But of course, you know, the situation in Armenia at the moment is 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 complex. Um, I, I'm actually hoping to go fairly soon, so I'll have a better picture of what the atmosphere is like. But, you know, this is a country that now feels highly traumatised. I mean, Nagorno-Karabakh, which they called Republic of Artsakh, mm-hmm. um, had a very, very important cultural, historical significance for the Armenians. So the loss of it... A lot, a lot of the churches is, of, of uh, this, the Armenian Orthodox Church were based there. Exactly. So it, it, it's got a very important place in, 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 in Armenian thinking. And so this is going to be a highly traumatised society, not least of all because you've suddenly got an influx of 120,000 Armenians from Nagorno-Karabakh who've arrived in the country as refugees. Mm-hmm. So it's going to have to be dealing with this. And this is not a rich country. Um, you know, it's it's a fascinating country. And, if, you know, if I might sort of make the point, you know, mm-hmm. if anyone gets an opportunity to go there, it is absolutely well worth the visit. Professor James Curlinsey of the London School of Economics, always very interesting to talk to you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Do you agree? Do you disagree? Here's how is Ireland's political, social and current affairs podcast. Go to the website for sources and references from the show. And while you're there, you can like the show on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter and follow James Curlinsey at James Curlinsey. And get in touch if you want to suggest a guest or a topic for a future show. Thanks again to all of the patrons on Patreon. That covers the cost of keeping the podcast going. And if you could throw in a couple of euro once or twice a month, please do go and sign up at patreon.com slash here's how. That link is on the website. Also there you can find out how to subscribe to the podcast for free on your computer, on your phone or by email. All that information is at www.hereshow.ie. The Here's How podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. The co-producer is Kevin Wolf. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.